Hey, good morning. How you doing, 11 o'clock? <laughs> All right. This is going to be interesting. Hey, if you're here for the millionth time, you're here for the very first time. We're glad you're here. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And just because it's the right time of year, I got to ask, does anybody still have an NFL team in the fight? Anybody still? I had to, uh, I had to resist the urge to wear a jersey up there, but I'm in my San Francisco red representing up here. I know. I alienated like half of you, but you got to deal with that with Jesus. All right. Hey, like, uh, like Dave said, when you walked in, you got a, a program. Inside, there is awe. <laughs> Man. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think I can do this anymore. My head's not in it. So, so we're just going to close in prayer and like best, best service ever, right? Inside your program, dang, now I'm really sad. Inside your, inside, your, inside your program, there is a message note sheet that is a great tool to help you follow along or jot down anything the Lord may highlight for you. We're going to jump into a time of prayer and get started, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, who you are. Father, we thank you that you are our king. We thank you that your word is living and active and never comes back void. And so today as we open up your word, that's the focus for us. Not my words, not anything else other than your word. Your word is going to show us just how much bigger you are, just how much filled with love you are, just the incredible plans you have for our life. And we pray, this over, pray that over the service. In your son's name, amen. So over this last year, I got into a new hobby. I started getting into the hobby of DJing. Now, my best friend Patrick, who's actually our kids pastor as well, he's been DJing for some time, and so he recruited me into it. And I enjoy it. I like electronic music. I like top 40 music. And so I bought some simple equipment, and he's been teaching me how to do this. And I've been having a lot of fun, but at least to be the type of DJs we aspire to be, one thing that really surprised me is this is a lot harder than I expected it to be. Because to do what we're trying to do, you have a lot lot of plate spinning. You have a lot that you need to multitask and you really need to focus. If there's one thing I've learned in trying to develop this hobby of DJing, that is if you're not focused on what you're doing, everything is going to come to a grinding halt. Now I want to be very clear about something. Patrick is an awesome DJ. I am not. <laughs> when you're not good at things, you say, I'm having fun at it. So I am having fun <laughs> at DJing, but, I'm, but because of his grace and him, him being a good teacher, I've gotten to DJ some events with Patrick. And so back in early September, we were DJing a wedding together, and it was an ideal setting for us. It was a young couple. Patrick was doing more of the emceeing. My job was the music. We're halfway through the set, and they're just loving the music. The party is going. It's bumping. Everything is going really well. And so now I need to do something that's very simple, what I'd done multiple times that night. I need to go from the song that's playing from one deck and transition it to the next deck, to the next song. So I'm ready to go, and I took my focus off my laptop for a split second. I don't remember what happened, but I hit my crossfader, and I transitioned successfully to a deck that was not on. Everything stopped. Party stopped. Nobody at a wedding cares where the DJ is when things are going well. You better believe they know when to look when everything stops. <laughs> now, I tell that story for two reasons. One, you probably shouldn't ever hire me for your events. <laughs> but two, 
that leads to a much deeper truth about just us as people that we have a lot of options as to what to be focused on, do we not? But if we are not focused on the right thing, then life comes to a grinding halt. See, in this journey we've been in 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 Mark's gospel, Jesus has said this and has demonstrated this in many ways. But the clear message has always been there. When Jesus came for his people, Jesus didn't come for some of us. Excuse me, Jesus didn't come for a part of us. Jesus didn't even come for the majority of us. He came for all of us. He came for uh, 100% of our focus. And so the question that we're gonna be diving into today is where is your focus? Are you giving God 100%? Or is he getting something? Because here's the reality. Whatever it is we are truly focused on, that is what we are worshiping. So if you're here for the very first time, let me just take a few moments to bring you up to speed. For about the last year, we've been in a teaching, in a journey through the gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Now Mark was a key leader in the early movement of Jesus. Mark was a close personal friend of the apostle Peter, one of the original 12 men that walked with Jesus. And so what Mark's gospel is, Mark was writing down Peter's firsthand eyewitness. Peter was telling Mark, here's what Jesus said and here's what Jesus did. Now because this has been a long journey, what we've done is we've broken this into three series. I like to call them three epic series. And so let's recap those real quick. The first series we did was a series called Jesus the King. And that was dealing with one fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Remember, the nation of Israel was expecting more of a political Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to walk through Rome in a war horse and chariot and topple Caesar over and set up a new nation. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to fix things in the short term, not the promised Christ from the Old Testament. The turning point in the entire gospel and the turning point in that series was when Jesus asked the most important question any of us could ever answer, who do you say I am? And we ended that series with Peter going, you are the Christ, which as Mike has been saying is not Jesus' last name, but it is a title. It is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. And that took us to the next series, The Call to Follow, where now that we've established that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, the questions then become, so if you're not the Messiah we were expecting, what have you come to do? And related to that, what does it mean to follow you? And if you remember, that series started with Jesus saying, if you are going to follow me, you need to be ready to pick up your cross, which as Mike translated means, you need to be ready to give me your literal life. In that series, we learned three things about our king and the call to follow this king. That call is countercultural, that call is radical, and that call is future-focused. Jesus isn't just looking at the short term, but he's looking for all of eternity. Now, last week, Mike kicked off the third and last series in our journey through Mark called Jesus, the Crucified King. And if you remember, Mike had highlighted the fact that as we've established that Jesus has, has been king earlier in Mark, Jesus' Jesus's response was unique where he responded going, okay, let's keep this to ourselves for now until the time is right. Well, now the time is right. See, Mike used the analogy of a card player last week that up until this point, Jesus has been playing the cards of who he is and what he's come to do very close to his chest. 
And now he's going to start playing these cards. See, this last series is focused on the last week of Jesus' life. And so last week, we looked at what's traditionally called the triumphal entry. Jesus played a card, and it was a loud one, wasn't it? Jesus played a card, and they, he basically got a Super Bowl victory parade as he came in being treated as king. But do you remember what Mike highlighted last week? That many of these same people who were shouting, that's our king, Hosanna, yeah, we're with you at the end of the week are gonna be the same people that are shouting, crucify him. And what's the difference then? Focus. They weren't in this 100%. They weren't committed for the good and the bad. And so today, that's the core truth of what we're gonna be looking at in our scripture that Jesus is gonna cause us to stop and think about does he truly have our complete and undivided attention and focus. He's going to play another card revealing his kingship and he's gonna do it in a loud, in a bold, and even a violent way. And you can bet he has definitely got everybody's attention through this. So let's look, let's dig in. If you got your Bibles, we're gonna be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. So go ahead and open up your Bible, turn on your apps, Mark chapter 11. So starting at verse 12 of chapter 11. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig, a, a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, let's stop right here. I need to make a quick note about this. The section that we're going to be covering this morning is actually bookended by what I just read and then a continuation to the story with this fig tree. See, Jesus cursed this tree. And after our section, the disciples and him are going to head back out that same road and they're going to encounter that tree. And that tree has died because of Jesus' curse. Now, that's a very unique encounter in Jesus' life. In fact, if my memory serves correctly, that's the only recorded miracle we have of Jesus that resulted in destruction. So next week, Dave Cox is going to be up here continuing our series, and he's going to tackle that because it's a very interesting insight into the nature of faith, but it's very related to our story today. So we're going to continue on. Now, before we jump back into Scripture, let me set the scene. If you remember, what we started last week is that in the city of Jerusalem, it is Passover week, and this is a big deal. If you were an adult Jewish man, you were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for three different celebrations, Passover being one of them. Now, Passover was a celebration of the past. It was celebrating the fact that the Lord had pulled the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. It was a celebration that he had created a new nation, the nation of Israel under Moses. But Passover was also a celebration looking into the future expectantly awaiting Messiah who was to come. And so you need to understand the scene. See, that's what Jesus walked into. And we're continuing in this Passover week. So you need to understand the scene. Picture what Jesus is walking into. Jerusalem is overflowing with people. There is an amazing atmosphere going on. People have come. They're here to celebrate 
Passover had a lot of religious significance, but Passover also carried with it a lot of patriotic celebration. I like how Mike described it last week where Passover is like our 4th of July on steroids because it was an eight-day celebration and especially at the temple. See, this is why everybody came to Jerusalem is because that's where the temple was. Now, ever since the early days when it was the tabernacle, a mobile temple, the temple was always the place where heaven met earth. The temple was always the place in the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God dwelt. And so when it came to Passover, you came to the temple. You offered your Passover lamb. You offered your sacrifice. And it was the place you came and you worshiped. So it was a centralized place of worship. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus came in to Passover week. There was this parade, this processional. And then what Mark tells us, what a lot of people don't catch is in verse 11, I want to say it is, he goes to the temple that night and he looks around. And you need to understand what Jesus sees. And this was normal for Passover time. See, the temple was a huge, huge structure. Sometimes when we think of the temple and the gospels, we, we kind of think of it like Rocky Peak, kind of like our buildings and our size. But it was nothing. This temple was massive. It sat on 35 acres. And the temple was divided into four sections. The biggest section was the outer court. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, this is the area where our story is going to take place today. This court was roughly five football fields long and three football fields wide. Now, as Jesus is walking into this court, what he sees because it's Passover week is a giant and vibrant marketplace. See, what they were doing is they had vendors selling animals. They were selling Passover sheep. Or if you couldn't afford a sheep, you would buy a dove. That was traditionally the offering of the poor. They also had money changers because there was a temple tax that men needed to pay. And the temple would not accept Roman money. So just like today we do certain currency exchange, exchanges, they had to do the same thing. And there was a lot going on in the temple area. So the night before our story, Jesus goes and he sees all this. The word I want to use to describe it is he does recon. And then he comes back the next morning. Now understand something. For a Jewish family growing up in, growing up in, this day, in that day and age, the scene at the temple, normal. Sure, there's a lot of hubbub and a lot of going on, but completely mundane. So the disciples would walk in and go, hey, this is normal. In fact, for Jesus himself, this is the temple he went to. This would be normal. Yet on this morning, as Jesus puts that card down, his response to what is going on, to this marketplace scene, as one pastor described it, pictured the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and add animals. <laughs> Jesus' response to what was going on in the temple court was to start throwing furniture. So let's read. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Let's stop, oh, excuse me, those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Let's stop right there. Jesus is upset. He is throwing furniture. 
See, Mark makes that note at the end of that, at the end of that section as well, that the temple courts, this place that was sacred, was also used as a shortcut to get to the Mount of Olives. So you had vendors and travelers just using it as a shortcut. Jesus was disrupting that. Jesus is very angry about what is going on. See, to paint a picture, you've got to ask this question, does this seem like the Jesus so many other people picture Jesus to be? So many people have this perception of Jesus like small, thin, holding a sheep, being safe and comfortable. And here we are, Jesus is flipping tables. To paint more of this picture in John's gospel in chapter two, we have an account of Jesus clearing the temple. Now to be completely honest, we're not sure if that's this account or if he did this during another Passover. But in John's account, he tells us that Jesus was so angry, he made a whip. Have you ever pictured Jesus as somebody that was so mad he made a weapon to drive people out? But Jesus is very upset. And so the underlying question is, why? Why are you so upset? Now, what's going to happen next is Jesus is going to teach. And he's going to do two quotations from the Old Testament And we're going to dig into these quotations a little bit to understand his intended meaning. So let's keep reading. Verse 17, and as he taught them, Jesus said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So let's look at those two quotations right there. The first quotation, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, is actually a direct quotation from Isaiah 56. And so there's two things that Jesus is saying here. The first thing is when you think about the actual act of prayer, when you think about the heart of prayer, prayer is not just some mindless discipline that we do to check something off a spiritual list, but prayer is relational. Prayer is deepening a relationship with our God. Jesus is saying, that's what this temple is supposed to be. This is supposed to be where we come and encounter God, where we come and worship. But that's not happening here. But then he goes on and says, this is supposed to be a house for all nations. Now, what's very unique is that, that the end of that quote is unique just to Mark. See, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptics. They have this account. But Matthew and Luke, and this is a sidebar, by the way, Matthew and Luke, they end with, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. They don't say for all nations, but Mark does. See, Mark's original audience were Gentiles. And here's the message that Mark is sending. See, the court of the Gentiles was named as such because if you were not Jewish, but wanted to pursue Yahweh, wanted to pursue God. This is the place where you could do it. This is a place set aside because you couldn't go any further in the temple if you weren't Jewish. This is the place set aside for you to come and meditate, for you to come and worship, for you to come and pray to, pray to the Lord God. Do you think there was a lot of prayer and meditation going on in this marketplace? See, another thing that Jesus was doing that Mark picks up on is the fact that, remember, there were a lot of false expectations of the Messiah. In fact, much of the nation of Israel had expected that the Messiah would come and clean the temple courts of foreigners. And here is Jesus cleaning it for them. It's an interesting note, but let's jump to the second quotation when he says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. 
Jeremiah 7, the entire chapter is devoted to the Lord lamenting through the prophet Jeremiah the state of worship in the temple that had become in that time. Now, what's interesting about this is if you've been in church for any length of time and you've heard this story taught on before, more often than not, usually what you hear is the sole reason, the number one reason why Jesus was angry was because the religious establishment was ripping people off financially. Because what we know about the religious establishment, there's probably that was probably happening. A lot of times the assumptions are, if you had to buy animals, the prices were jacked up very, very high. If you had to exchange money into the acceptable money, because they would, the temple would not accept Roman money, the exchange rates were absurdly high. A lot of times you sit there and go, well, Jesus says den of robbers because that's what they were doing. And is it likely that that was going on? It's probably pretty likely based on what we know. But here is what's unique. Mark doesn't give us any explicit reason to believe that was the root of why Jesus was angry. In fact, when we dig more into this phrase, den of robbers, the word robbers itself, the Greek word is a Greek word called listes that we've translated to robbers, but that word originally tra usually translates into bandits, rebels, or revolutionaries, not swindlers. Now hang on to that because I'm going to come back to that point in a little bit. So Jesus is creating quite a scene. And as we're sitting here asking, why is he doing this? So is everybody else around him. And so what we're going to see now is we're going to see the religious establishment, and we're going to see his followers and his people respond to what Jesus just did. So let's keep reading. Verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So let's talk about the religious establishment. The chief priests, the people that ran the temple, often were a political party known as the Sadducees. The teachers of the law usually were scribes, but also you had Pharisees in there as well. Those political parties formed a Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Now, something you need to know about the Sadducees and the teachers of the law is like most political parties, they often didn't get along. They clashed a lot. If you turn on any news show, do you ever see political parties getting along? No, but here's the point you need to make on this. But if you did turn on a news show and you saw Republicans and Democrats agreeing on the same thing, then you know it's a big deal, right? They're in complete agreement. We need to kill him. See, Jesus has clashed with the religious establishment before. They've had malicious intent before. But as Mike described it last week, that Patrick had got lit the minute he went into Jerusalem. And now it's going short, it's going further and forward towards that bomb, and it's going to culminate in Jesus' death. Because if there was one thing that you knew in the establishment, there's one thing you knew in that culture, is you don't mess with the temple. And Jesus just did. Do you understand what he did to the religious establishment? Jesus walked into what they had claimed to be their house and usurped their authority. Jesus walked in and said, you are not running this temple the way God intended it. He usurped their authority 
with his. He put them in a position where they had no choice but to respond. So that was the first group of people. But the second group of people, it said the people around him were amazed. Now, the Greek word we've translated to be amazed is called ekpleso. Now, how we translate amazed, another way we could translate amazed is astonished or stupefied. You got to understand. See, put yourself in the shoes of one of Jesus' disciples. You remember how I talked about earlier, the marketplace at the temple was normal, Right? This is just life as they knew it. They walked in. This is the way it's been since we were kids. This was normal. In fact, this was just mundane. Yeah, it's hectic and things going on, but this is how it's always been. And here's Jesus shaking everything up. And they're probably jaw on the ground going, what is going on? I'm willing to bet if I was there, I would feel kind of awkward, kind of do one of those slow, like, oh, okay. I don't know what's happening right now. It might have been uncomfortable, but again, it's that question. They're sitting there going, I don't understand what is happening right now. They were stupefied by Jesus' act, and we need to try to look at it in the big picture. That million-dollar question, why did Jesus do this? Because we need to get away from our simple Sunday school answers. And so let's start looking at some of the facts Sometimes we assume that Jesus walked into the temple courts, saw what was going on, and you know what? Was surprised. I didn't know this was happening in God's house. Let me flip some tables around. But we know from Mark's earlier account, he wasn't surprised. He went and did recon and saw it. In fact, he grew up in this. Even if he hadn't gone the night before, he knew what was happening. The second thing that we know is that the temple, the business, the marketplace did not stop. Now, we often read this and assume that it happened, the, mar- the, the court is about the size of the Rocky Peak patio. So when Jesus starts doing this, that all business stopped. But remember I described how big the court of the Gentiles is? Jesus did disrupt things, but he did not bring the marketplace to a grinding halt. Had he, the Roman guards would have intervened. It was Passover week. Rome was already worried that the Jews would revolt and create a coup. So there were extra guards everywhere, and the guards didn't come in and arrest Jesus. So then why did he do this? Look at it this way. Jesus the king walked into his house and saw that it was in disarray. So the king took his house back. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was sending a message to the religious establishment. He was sending a message to the nation of Israel. And he's sending that message to each and every one of us now. That the temple of God was not fulfilling its intended purpose. So let's dig into that a little bit. In your note sheet, there's a section titled Cleaning House. And under that, there's a subsection titled Two Takeaways. See, Jesus had fulfilled a prophecy that was in Malachi 3 that said when the, Lord, when the Lord would return, the Lord would cleanse his temple. And so there's an underlying question, why was that so important? Why was it so important for Jesus to send this message about the temple? Let's think about it this way. The temple was not fulfilling its intended purpose. In fact, there on your note sheet, that's the first fill-in. The temple has one purpose to worship God. 
Now, we see examples every day of things, organizations, whatever, that have strayed from their original purpose, have we not? Now, the reality is they're not always bad things. Sometimes there's great innovation. Sometimes there's great evolution that happens. And one of my favorite examples of a positive of something straying from its original purpose is something I carry in my pocket everywhere I go, my phone. I have a smartphone, I have an iPhone, and I love it. I love the hundreds of things I can do. I love that I can jump on the internet wherever I'm at. I love that I can do my emails, and yes, I play games on it. I love that I can do a thousand different things, but you know what I rarely ever use my iPhone as? A phone. I rarely ever use it as what's in its name. I like to joke that it's pretending to be a phone in name only. In fact, when my wife and I last year, we switched, uh, we switched cell carriers, everything they do plans are is based in data. And they tack on like endless talk because they're like, oh yeah, there's talk. Do you want to do that? Remember that? You can do that. We don't care. <laughs> so that's an example That's an example of something that grew or strayed from its original purpose, and that's a good example, but let's go back to the temple. See, why Jesus walked into his house to take it back is simple. It was with that feeling we looked at. The temple was never meant to have another purpose. The temple is where heaven met earth. The temple is where you could come to encounter God. The temple is where you could pray pray and develop this relationship, whether for small and mundane things or whether in big radical changes. And we see both. The temple was never meant to have another purpose. The temple was sacred. We use the biblical word holy often at its very root. The word holy means to set apart. The temple was meant to be set apart from big radical changes to small mundane changes. The temple was meant for one purpose, for you to come and you know the only thing that you're gonna do here, the only purpose is to worship. Is that the temple Jesus walked in on? No. He walked into a marketplace He walked into clutter. And understand something, the marketplace, what Jesus walked into, this clutter, these physical barriers to people even getting in, they they were a physical representation of a much, much deeper problem that the religious establishment had caused towards the temple. See, the way the religious establishment had led the temple, the way that they had started making subtle changes, the way they had refocused the temple from its original purpose had taken the idea of a vibrant, growing relationship with God and it had turned it into religion at its worst because it turned interacting with God into a transaction. It took an encounter with God and it turned it into crossing it off a list. And here's what I mean. The way it out worked was show up, go to Jerusalem, get your animal, give it for somebody to sacrifice, check it off your list, you have worshiped, you're done. Have we not encountered that religion in this day and age as well? It's all about to-dos. It's never about a relationship Okay, I went to church. I did my spiritual duty. I'm done. Hey, I opened my Bible or I did my life group homework. I'm done. I never have to think about, I don't have to think about this anymore. I'm done. But that's not what we're called to do. See, transactional, lack of relationship, that's not 
worship. See, the religious establishment had redefined what the focus of the temple was, had redefined what worship was. Remember that Jesus called what he saw a den of robbers? Remember I said to hold on to what it mean by bandit and all that? Basically what Jesus was saying was the temple had been turned into a smuggler's den, meaning outside of the temple courts, people would live life as if God didn't exist. Sin, walk away from God, don't even think about him. And then you walked into this smuggler's den where you could feel safe and good about yourself because you're crossing worship off a list. And then you'd walk back in and nothing would change. And so you see it turned into compartments in life. And so we see now this is a big underlying reason Jesus walked into his house to take it back because this was supposed to be a place of worship and giving table scraps to God is not worship. See, the message that Jesus is sending is this place has one purpose, to worship God, and how we look at worship always needs to be in this truth. Worship is substantial. And that leads us to our next fill-in. Substantial worship requires focus. Hey, think back to when you were a student whether in high school or college, when you were a student, did you ever utter the phrase or did you ever encounter the phrase C's get degrees? Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you were obviously a good student. (laughs) That was a credo I lived by when I was 18 and 19 and starting off in college. Let me explain that a little bit. Do you remember in grade school when they would actually write out what the letters meant? Do you remember what was next to C? satisfactory, average, you could basically say, meh, all right. But here's the trick we all learned at an early age. Even if I just got C's, I'm going to pass. And so this idea of C's get degrees basically means, hey, I'm going to do just enough to get by. I'm going to do the very bare minimum, and for whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm really, really busy, or if I'm speaking honestly for myself, it's because we're lazy, but I'm not gonna do more than I absolutely have to just to get by. Now the reality of that is that way of living, that mantra has seeped out of the academic world into other areas of life as well, right? And do you realize how destructive that is in our relational lives? How if we approach relationships with that attitude, how quickly that destroys it? Let me personify this a little bit through just through my station in life. Can you imagine the type of marriage I would have if I chose to be a C's get degrees husband? Can you imagine the type of kids I'd be raising if I chose to be a C's get degrees father? Hey, Megan, we had dinner together last night. That means I'm good until next week. See you then. Gabriel, I sat down and I watched Sesame Street with you yesterday, so we're good for a month. So we hear the absurdity of that, right? We hear like, no, no, that doesn't cut it. And why? Because those people in my life wouldn't feel love. They would feel like, oh, you're, I'm wasting your time. They wouldn't feel love. They wouldn't feel valued. But now we have to ask a very deep question. Then why do we, why do I have the audacity to treat my relationship with God with a C's get degrees attitude? It wouldn't fly with anybody else but to the creator of the universe. 
to the God that saved me, to the God that holds my eternity in his hand. I have the audacity to give him my table scraps. I have the audacity to put him on a list and go, boom, done. I don't need to think about you. I have the audacity to make compartments in my life and go, here's my spiritual life. Here's my work life, my family life, my fun life. You don't go there. I showed up on Sunday. What more do you want? Your life. See, going back to the last series, pick up your cross to follow me. That wasn't a small ask, was it? He wants your very life. And see, what happens is the religious establishment of that day had done something that many of us have accepted as well, is they've taken this word, this concept, this beautiful act, worship, and they shrunk it. They shrunk it into something that fits nicely and neatly into a little box. Let me ask you something rhetorically. How do you define worship? How would you answer that question? How do you define worship? Now let me ask a sub-question to that. Does your definition is however you define it, is it something that's finite? Does it have a beginning and an end? Is worship what we call this service? So that's worship, hour and a half. Is worship the three songs that we sang before somebody got up here and taught? Regardless of what that is, again, the question is, is worship something that has a beginning and something that ends, something that I put in a compartment? Because when we look at scripture, when we look how God defines worship and never defined it in the finite, but it defined it as the purpose of our lives, as the purpose of the temple. See, God spoke this through Paul when in Romans 12, he wrote, live your lives as an act of worship. See, the religious establishment had shrunk what worship is. They created this culture where show up, cross it off the list, you did your worship duty, and here's Jesus going, no, 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 no. See, understand, worship is how we live. Worship is what this building was intended to do. It's not a finite thing that you give me three times a year. It's how you live your life. See, we often talk about in church when somebody's teaching Part of our job is we take church words that we use all the time, but we want to make sure we all clear the understanding. So we'll define words like holy, or we'll define words like repentance or justification. See, these church words that we say all the time in church, but a lot of us don't really know what they mean. But you know what else happens in church? We have normal words that we use in church all the time, that we say all the time, that we don't realize the depth of the implication. And on this topic of worship, one of those words we use all the time, but we don't mean is the word always. We come to a place like this and we sing songs that say, God, I will praise you always. We say that in our prayer, I'm, I'm going to listen to your voice and your voice alone always. I'm going to always give you my heart. And the reality is often our definition of always is an hour. Our definition of always is, well, I, I go to service, I'm in a life group, what more does God want? A lot. See, we need to take this back. Because how you restore worship 
is you put its focus back on where it was intended to be. And a great step towards doing that is understanding what we mean when we say always. There in your note sheet, in one of David's Psalms, he writes, I will extol, that means to praise highly. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. It's a powerful and bold message Jesus is sending in the temple courts, is it not? Important question, though. That building was going to fall. Jesus knew that that building was going to fall. Yet here is Jesus saying a very, very bold message in the temple courts, talking about how the, the dwelling place of God needs to operate but that building doesn't exist anymore. So does that mean that what Jesus said is not applicable anymore? The reality is Jesus, being the genius God that he is, was looking far beyond those walls, was looking far beyond that building. See, Jesus knew that that building was going to fall, and he knew that one day he was going to raise up a new temple. So these two things that Jesus had said, they were commands. They were the foundation for the new temple. So we need to ask ourselves now in January 2014, in this day and age, what is the new temple? Us. Us. We are the new temple. There in your note sheet, there's a section titled the new temple. The first fill-in is just that. Christ followers are the dwelling place of God. It's something we don't think about that often, is it? It's something they didn't think about that often then either. But you see, Jesus came in and very radically he created a big wake-up call because sometimes we need that. The word I like to use is Jesus created some massive turbulence, did he not? Ever been on a plane with turbulence? It gets your attention. Last December, I was flying home from New York. Like Manhattan is my hands down my favorite place in the world. And so I'm flying home. It had been a really smooth flight and I'm very engrossed in my iPad. And when I say engrossed, like shut out everything else, was reading something. I don't remember what I was reading, but knowing me, it was probably a comic book. But I'm sitting there and I was reading something and out of nowhere, bam, plane just got hit with this massive wave of turbulence. You better believe my attention was not on my iPad anymore. I'm looking around going, okay. This was turbulence on a grand scale because it got all of our attention. So look on your note sheets. There's a verse from 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. See, I described to you how a Jew growing up in that world has viewed the temple. And so understand that now Paul writing, Lord leading, that we are now the temple as Christ followers, that was a revolutionary concept. Like me? Because how was temple defined? The temple was where God dwelt. The temple was the very dwelling place of God. You're saying that's me? See, here's what Jesus did. Jesus was the fulfillment 
of everything that came before him. See, this building, this place where God's presence dwelled, it was always meant to be temporary because there was still one problem with the temple is that while God's presence was there and it was a great starting point for worship, we still didn't have access to his very presence. We needed an intermediary. We needed somebody to go in once and act as our mediator to go in. Jesus came to bridge that gap. See, we couldn't be in the very presence of God because of our sin. But Jesus' death, his resurrection, his forgiveness, and his restoration of us created us as made us a new creation where now God sees us through the lens of Jesus. And we're gonna get into this later in the series that curtain that separated the presence of God from everybody else tore. And now what is Jesus saying? You are the new temple. When you give your life to Jesus in a beautiful act of repentance, when you say, I want you to be king in my life, the Lord himself comes and sets up shop. The Holy Spirit is given to you and now God dwells within his new temple. There's a worship song that I like this line. It says, the same power that conquered the grave lives in me. See, today, Christ followers, many of us can grow up in a religious, in, in a religious establishment where we still view buildings as the house of God. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Often it's when somebody's telling you, you don't do that in the house of God. Many of us grew up and we go, well, Rocky Peak is where God dwells. And when I leave, I've left the very presence of God. Let me be very honest and very clear with you. God is not here because Mike and I and the other pastors have sprinkled this building with magical stuff, have chanted or have danced around it. God is here because of you. You are the temple. When you leave this place, church isn't over. When you go to lunch, when you go to Target, when you go to your kids, when you go check the Niner game score, when you're in the good times, when you're in the bad times, when you're crying, when you're laughing, whatever it is, church is happening because you are the temple. Now the amazing thing about God's love for us, the thing that I don't have a good answer for is I don't know about you, but I'm very aware of my shortcomings. I'm very aware of the fact that I sin, that I'm selfish, that I'm stubborn. I'm very aware that I argue with God and I go into conflict. I don't fully understand what it is he sees in me, that he wants to live in me, but I'm glad he does. But I do understand the main thing he sees in me, Jesus. You are the temple. And just like the original building, you were created for the sole purpose of worship. Everything else flows out of that. You were created for the sole purpose of worship. And if we want to ensure that our worship is substantial, then men and women, we need to be a people that are giving our worship to the rightful recipient of it but we do lose focus. I lose focus, and we lose focus for a lot of different reasons. We lose focus because of sin. We lose focus because of priorities being out of, out of, out of, out of whack. 
We lose focus because of just normal things in the mundane. We lose focus and we go, okay, God, I I can't give you 100% right now because I need to do this. I can't give you 100% because I need to do that. And the reality is when we accept that lack of focus as normal, that's when we will feel destruction. But because we all lose focus, the question we need to deal with is how do we refocus? Now, it's kind of a trick question. Because how do we refocus? We don't. Jesus does. And so that leads us to the second fill-in. If we are the temple, then Jesus needs to cleanse our temple. I've mentioned before I'm a parent. My son turned uh, two last weekend. My daughter Lucy is two months, uh, two months away from being born and joining our party here. <laughs> and if there's one thing Megan and I have learned being parent is that we don't know what we're doing. Um, I don't know a lot of parents that do, but we're very aware of that. But there is one thing that we've learned from amazing parents around us is we are parenting our children with an end game in sight. See, we have a goal for our children. See, when Lucy and Gabriel hit 18, which is going to happen sooner rather than later. Our goal is that we've raised them in such a way that they are competent adults. Our goal is that we've raised them in such a way that they can run after God on their own. They have a good sense of responsibility on their own. As scary as it sounds, and I love my little guy, I'm going to love my little girl, I'm raising them in such a way where they don't need me as much anymore because they're competent adults. Now, that's the end game, and so so much of our parenting is focused on that. And so that's why any good parent, when you see a bigger picture, it's why we raise our kids rather than leave them to figure it out, right? It's why we're there, and what do we do when our kids lose focus is we need to come in and correct. We need to come in and restore that focus. Now, that's not always easy. I've spent almost 13 years, the majority of my adult life, working with teenagers. And I don't know if you knew this, but teenagers rebel against their parents. (laughs) And often, why do the teenagers or any age, why do you rebel? Because there's a conflict over what's the bigger picture, what's best. But a good parent, a great parent, they don't quit. A great parent is still in the game going, I know you don't see it, but I see a bigger picture than you do. See, Jesus is our perfect father, who we just need to look at the cross to go to, those, go to see what lengths he will go to for his children. He won't quit on us. And Jesus sees something much bigger for your life, for my life, than I could ever hope to dream about. But sometimes we're going to come into conflict over that. And Jesus is going to come in like a good father and refocus us. And so if we want him to cleanse our temple, we need to understand about the ramifications of what we're asking. Remember I talked about always how we say certain things that we don't understand the ramifications of? There's more. Let's dig into this. We can sit here and go, God, I want to know more of you. God, I want to hear your voice. God, I want to be led by you and you alone. And that's an awesome thing to say and pray. But understand the ramifications of that. Often God will, God will respond and go, okay, 
But if we're going to do this, we need to clean house first because all of that is worship and we need to focus worship where it's supposed to be. So if you want to know more of me, then maybe we need to deal with that sin issue in your life. If you want to need more, know more of me, then I need to clean house and maybe put some priorities where they're supposed to go. If you want to know more of me, then maybe I need to come into the temple and deal with some of the emotional garbage that's there. If you want to know more of me, know that it always involves worship. This is not a transaction. Jesus is saying, I'm in it to win it. But sometimes Jesus cleansing our temple means he's coming in with a bulldozer. But sometimes that's what we need to get our attention. And so we need to be a people that don't half-heartedly open that door and go to Jesus. You can mess with that chair. Don't touch anything else. We need to be a people that hands Jesus the keys to the house. Your home, not mine. Do what you need to do. Is it messy sometimes? Yeah. Is it uncomfortable sometimes? Yes. But like any good parent, a good parent does not correct you because they want to see you fail. A good parent does not correct you because they want to knock your knees out from under you. A good parent always does that out of love because they want you to experience life. Do you know what happens when we as a temple are focused on our purpose? We live. We experience life. We experience freedom. We experience Jesus. There on your note sheet, there's a quote by one of my favorite communicators, a guy named Louis Giglio. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I really liked it. He says, we're created to worship. That's why you and I are going to spend our lives declaring the worth of something. As a result, we've got to make sure the thing we declare to be of greatest value is really worthy in the long run. Don't waste your worship on some little God squandering your birthright on idols made only with human imagination. Guard your worship. To choose well doesn't mean that we can't appreciate things of beauty and style. It's certainly not wrong to deeply love one another, nor is it a sin to really be into playing soccer or to get stoked over a trip to your favorite destination. But when we elevate any of these things to the highest place in our hearts, we've gone too far. For great is the Lord and most worthy of our praise. Jesus the King has walked into your life and he's here to take his house back. We're going to go into a time of worship as we've established one of the many ways we can worship. And I pray that this be a time where you just do that business with the Lord where you feel his encouragement, you feel his love, you feel his ownership. The time maybe where we need to submit. Maybe the time where we need to wrestle a little bit. But regardless, this is a time with our father as his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being Lord. Thank you for being king. Thank you for being creator. Father, thank you for being patient. Thank you for being loving. Thank you. And I could go on and on and on but thank you that you dwell with us. Thank you that your word promised, I will never leave you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. 
Thank you that you're always here no matter what. And I pray that we as a congregation, I pray that we as a people, I pray that we as a temple would allow you to focus us on what we were created to worship. And that's you. We'll give this time to you, Lord. As the ushers come in and receive our gifts and offerings as well, Lord, we ask for your provision over this church. We thank you for the generosity of the givers. In your son's name, amen. Feel free to stand.